Mark, and we will read for you uh, the sermon text for today. Mark 9, 2 through 13. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, Why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one in the seat rack in front of you, and we'll look more closely at Mark chapter 9. Today is Super Bowl Sunday, for the three of you that didn't know that. Um, this is a day that some of you are suffering in silence. Green Bay Packer fans are suffering today. A lot of you are suffering because you don't give a rip about football nor overpriced commercials. But nor seriously, um, Super Bowl Sundays are tough if you have, have an alcohol addiction. And now you have face both the parties where alcohol is present as well as the commercials and you're wrestling with what it was like when maybe the Super Bowl uh, was a little different for you. Some of you, it's a time just kind of, it exposes loneliness, um, maybe a broken marriage or family or a strain in relationship. Um, the text of scripture in front of us asks, uh, gives us some um, hope when you're suffering in silence or when you're in any stage of present suffering. And so let me pray and we'll walk through this text. Father, um, if we're humans, we face suffering of differing degrees each day, some very severe and very debilitating. Some are just the daily bumps and bruises And there are all sorts of options in the world to deal with suffering and to face suffering. And some are very uh, deadly and disastrous. Others uh, maybe calm the storm for a bit, but bring no lasting hope. And uh, yet we believe that there is is a, a secure hope, a rock. And I pray that we would be reminded of that if it's a reminding we need or we would see it for the first time today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to kind of look at this passage under two headings. Uh, 
One is a, a veil and a voice, part one, and then two, a, uh, a valley and a vision. So let's look at this text. Verse 2 says, after six days. All right, so it's setting the stage. After six days. Well, after six days from what? Or after six days from when? It's referring to six days after Jesus began to speak very clearly, very plainly, it says, that his mission is going to end in death in Jerusalem. He has spoken very clearly that he is going to go to Jerusalem where he is going to be rejected and he's going to be killed. In that same conversation six days previously, he said, and by the way, if any of you would want to come after me and follow me and be my disciple, you need to pick up a cross. You need to lay down your life. After six days, a veil is pulled back and a voice speaks from heaven. Look what it says there. It says, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. So these are three major leaders in the early church. He takes them with them. He leads them up onto a high mountain, and they're alone. And there, though, all of a sudden, Jesus was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So what's, being ha what's occurring here is a veil is being pulled back so that James and Peter and John get to see Jesus in his intrinsic glory. It's been veiled by his flesh. It's been covered up in humanity. And for a moment, the veil is pulled back, and Jesus is, the word is transfigured. It's actually the Greek word metamorphosis. It's a caterpillar butterfly moment, and the heavenly, glorious Son of God, who has been God for all eternity, uh, the second member of the Holy Trinity, is dazzling white, so white, they say, so white that no bleach could make the, this white. A veil is pulled back. Now, more often than not, when a veil gets pulled back on a famous person, we see a dark side, not more glory. What we think is perfection turns out to be a gilded image or a facade you think about a Hollywood actor, that they irradiate this glory at the Oscars or the Emmys, but it turns out that they are, they're addicted to drugs or their family is falling apart. Like many of you, I love Robin Williams as an actor, funniest man maybe in Hollywood, and then to find out that he was struggling with demons in his soul. And his suicide was just devastating. We have political leaders that just are marked by fights for civic justice. And then we find out they have erratic personal lives. Even Martin Luther King Jr. is known to be in a, a kind of a serial adulterer. Maybe you remember that scene in The Wizard of Oz where Dorothy and her three friends finally get before the great and powerful wizard. But it turns out it was just a fearful man behind a curtain pulling a bunch of levers. And when Dorothy and her friends discover the wizard, he has the audacity to say, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. What is happening on this mountain, though, is when the veil is pulled back, when the curtain is pulled back, 
we find out Jesus is more glorious, more beautiful than they had got their minds around yet. I mean, they knew that he could heal people with a touch. They knew that he could speak with precision and accuracy about truth and righteousness and beauty. But they hadn't seen this. He irradiates glory. But (laughs) Peter doesn't have a clue of what's going on. Look what happens next. So Jesus is transfigured in this this glorious splendor. And it says in verse 4, There appeared before them also Elijah and Moses, who are talking with Jesus. Now, Elijah and Moses are two historical figures, great, famous heroes of the Jewish people who are long dead and now present. How they knew that it was Moses and Elijah, the Bible doesn't tell us, but they knew. And so Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. And he says, let us put up three shelters, one for you, One for Moses and one for Elijah. Verse 6. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Now, shelters are mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament. One particular famous shelter was called the Tabernacle, which was this traveling tent that went with the people of Israel when they had been in the wilderness and then eventually as they entered into the promised land of Israel. And inside this tent was what they would call the manifest glory of God, that somehow God was with them and wherever they went, as long as God was with them in the presence of this tent, they would win battles and they would experience blessing. And so probably Peter is thinking, wow, Jesus, we have the Holy Trinity here, you and Moses and Elijah, right? You know, the, uh, the Avenger team is now fully assembled, and we can go fight the dark powers together. And so we'll get you shelters so that wherever we go, we'll have your blessing and we'll have your, your power. This is going to be awesome. But <laughs> he gets rebuked from heaven. Now, if you get rebuked from your mom, that's bad. If you get rebuked from God, That's worse. Verse 7, Then a cloud appeared, and it covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So the veil is pulled back, but the voice speaks, and the voice is saying, Peter, Moses and Elijah, they're wonderful, but this is my son. Jesus is my son. I love him. Listen to him. Listen. Heed him. Follow him. And then after the voice, only Jesus is left. Why? Because Jesus is left to complete a mission that neither Moses nor Elijah could complete. As great as these godly men were, who stood faithfully in their generation, they are not enough. Jesus is not, you know, the Iron Man to the Captain America and Hulk, you know, Avenger team. No, no, no. There is one hero, there is one son, who is the beloved eternal son of God. Listen, 
to him. I mean, it's a remarkable scene. I mean, just think if an up-and-coming American politician was taken up to a high mountain, and there appeared among them, right? It was Abraham Lincoln and George Washington. And a voice speaks from heaven. It's not about honest Abe. It's not about George Washington. It's about this man. He will bring redemption to America. When it comes to Christianity, when what we're talking about Jesus, we're not saying he's a pretty good moral crusader. We're not saying he's a fairly wise spiritual guru that you might want to listen to when you're in a pinch. Since the first century, and the voice from heaven, we believe that Jesus is God, the Son of God, and that he alone is able to bring hope. We think he's more important than Moses and Elijah and Muhammad and Buddha, even Tony Robbins. Right? He alone can complete what God has planned for him. But notice that this story doesn't end on the mountain. It actually ends going down into the valley. And that is, that is very significant for us to understand this text for our lives. So they have this veil pulled back. They have this voice, but then they go down in the valley. Verse 9 says, they're coming down the mountain. It says, Jesus gave them orders. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. From the dead. <laughs> says Peter, James, and John. They kept discussing the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. This, what? Death? Rising? Huh? And they asked him, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? Now this is an interesting question. And this is why they asked it. They believed that either a literal Elijah back from the dead was going to come and precede the Messiah. They believed, or someone like, like a great prophet would come and be like a front man for the Messiah. And so what, try to get the image of, you know, go back to this political example. It would be like if there was some prophetic word that for America... Abraham Lincoln would return to prepare the way for the greatest president of all time. And so if Abe showed up, we would expect, you know, they would kind of write things in America, and then this up-and-coming politician would come, and we'd all see him, and we'd all follow him, and we'd all vote for him, and all would be made well. It would make it really easy to vote for on caucus day. Oh, it's him. And so they're saying, okay, you've been talking about dying, but we thought that this Elijah-like prophet was going to show up, restore all things, everything would be wonderful, everything would be ready, and then we'd all follow the king, we'd all follow the Messiah, there'd be this huge blessing for Israel, this huge blessing in the city of Jerusalem, then it would spill out and we would once again rule the region and rule the world. That's what they're expecting, that's why they say, why did Elijah say he must come first? And Jesus is replying, he's trying, to, he's trying to, as he's coming down the valley, he wants to give them a vision for what's really going to happen. And he says, to be sure, Eliza does come first, and he restores all things. And then he goes on, Jesus is still speaking, why is it written then that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? He says, I tell you, Elijah has come. Elijah has come, 
And they have done to him everything they wish, just as it was written about him. So what Jesus is doing, he's cutting through uh, some lack of clarity, some com- and even though he's using confusing words, this is what he's saying. He's saying, the great Elijah to come, the great prophet that was to precede the Messiah has come, and it was John the Baptist. And in many ways, John the Baptist was the greatest prophet who ever lived. John the Baptist proclaimed the kingdom of God was coming. He proclaimed that evil would be punished. He explained that the way that you have a right relationship with God is you repent, you turn away from sin, and you submit yourself to God. He called people to symbolize that submission to God by being baptized, to say, I need to be washed, I need to be renewed, I need to start over. He, he called everyone to respond, all sorts of people, from the everyday citizen to the political leaders to the religious leaders. John the Baptist restored to Israel a right understanding of what it meant to walk with God. And Jesus is saying he restored it. He restored the preaching ministry. He restored truth. He restored righteousness. And they killed him for it. And so what now Jesus is explaining to them is that the Son of Man, which is what he calls himself, he's going to suffer just like the front man suffered. Just as they rejected the man who preached the kingdom, now they're going to reject the king. He wants to get their minds around. He needs to give them a vision for the future. This is what's going to happen. John the Baptist preached about holiness. Jesus says, I am holiness. And this is what they're going to do to me. John the Baptist said, if you repent and believe, you'll begin a new life. But one of the things that John the Baptist said is, you know, I just baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me, he's going to baptize you into the Holy Spirit and with a, a fire of purification. So Jesus is saying the front man has come and he has succeeded and now the Messiah is going to even surpass him and his death will surpass him. What I want you to realize is that the disciples, they needed this vision. This is for James and Peter and John. A couple of reasons why I know that this is for James, Peter, and John and not necessarily for Jesus. Just look at the text. First, he took them with him. Second, when heaven speaks, it doesn't say, you are my son, which is what it actually says way back at Jesus' baptism. When heaven speaks, it's a statement for the onlooking crowd. This is my son. Peter, James, and John, you need to know this is my son. You need to listen to him. And why do they need this message? Because what happened six days prior? Six days prior, they heard that their rabbi, their teacher, the one that they've even professed as Messiah, he is going to die, and that those who follow them can expect to die too. They need a vision for the valley of the shadow of death that the Messiah is going to go on, and then they're going to go on. They need this. You have to think about this. Six days prior, they hear, all right, the guy we're following is going to die, and so might we. Every one of those disciples is asking the question, so do we stay or do we go? Do I stay or do I go now? Do, 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 right? They're asking that. 
Is he really the Messiah? Is he the one we should keep following? You remember when we set down those fishing nets to follow Jesus? Maybe it's time to pick up those fishing nets and get back to fishing. I would say that if if there's any serious Christian in the room, you have had these sorts of debates in your heart. I trusted Jesus for life and hope. It's been mostly suffering. I followed Jesus for peace and happiness. I lack peace and I sure don't feel happy. The disciples needed a vision to face the valley. We need a vision to face the valley. We need something that gives perspective when I'm suffering, when I'm facing suffering, and when it doesn't go away right away. What I love in the Bible is as you keep reading, the the Apostle Peter actually talks about this event in a letter that he writes. So turn with me. Later in the Bible, it's one of the last books of the Bible, it's called 2 Peter, and it's referring to the second letter that Peter wrote to some Christians in the first century, Christians that were facing suffering, Christians that were facing hardship. And what he, in the process of writing to them, he actually reflects back to his experience on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. Listen to his words. Listen to what he is saying has significance for our lives. Peter writes in verse 15 of chapter 1, he says, And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. Interesting, he's talking about his departure. It's possible at this time Peter is in prison within months or years of getting crucified upside down for his allegiance to Jesus. But he says, before I depart, before my time on this earth is over, I want you to remember a few things. Verse 16, we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard his voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. He says we also have a prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Peter ties his experience on the mountain with every Christian's experience. And if you're not a Christian, it's the hope that you could have if you trust in Christ and are baptized into his name. But he's tying his mountain with our lives. And the key expression is there in verse 19 where he he says, we need a light shining in a dark place. Peter says the transfiguration for Peter, James, and John, that was a light for us, shining in a dark place. God gave us 
a vision so that we could face the valley. What he does here, though, in his letter is he says, all y'all Christians, all you is trying to, to, to press on in your suffering, the light in the dark place for you is God's prophetic words. He's talking about the scriptures. He's saying the Bible. This is, this is light for you in a dark place. This is God's vision for us so we can face our valley. Again, I, I don't know. I mean, one of the things that's been great about being the pastor here for almost 10 years is I've gotten to know you. I would say at the same time, that's also what's made it really hard to be here this long. I think most pastors leave because the burden of their churches gets so much, they just want to go start over. You know, if you saw my church directory, which I encourage you to mimic a practice, I try to pray through the church directory at least once a week. But by most of your names, I have the stories of your lives. The broken relationships, the sadnesses, the extended family, the relationships. I just have a, and you, that's only what you've told me. So I have just a little itty bitty glimpse of the burdens and the sufferings that you go through. My encouragement to us is we need a light in the dark places. We need a vision to not, to not give up in the valley. You know what's interesting? This is what really motivates any sort of you know, major effort in life. I mentioned you know, a few months ago you know, that, that Madonna, the famous singer, you know, she had this vision of success and she feared mediocrity. And that motivated her to give her life to music, just to, just to taste a little bit of musical glory. Some of you have heard of a basketball player named Michael Jordan, considered by some to be the greatest who ever played the game. Do you know what his early motivation was to go through the valley of basketball suffering? Well, these are the words from his NBA Hall of Fame induction speech. He, he, he mentions, well, and then there's Leroy Smith. Now, you guys think that's a myth. Leroy Smith was a guy when I got cut. He made the team. He made the varsity team. That started the whole process with me because when he made the team and I didn't, I wanted to prove not just to Leroy Smith, not just to myself, but to each coach that picked Leroy over me. I wanted to make sure you understood. You made a mistake, dude. You see Jordan had this vision of the varsity team. He had this vision of proving, coach, you made a mistake, dude. And that began a life of being the most intense competitor that has possibly ever played the game. He had a vision of basketball glory. And he suffered. He worked hard. He labored. Now, those glories fade. They are temporary and earthly. In 50 to 60 years, no one will know this guy's name. He'll be, he'll be as forgotten as uh, many have <laughs> been forgotten who had played basketball before him. 
What Jesus is doing, though, is he's calling us to suffer for things that have eternal ramifications. He's calling us to pursue a glory uh, that doesn't fade or perish. He's calling us to press on amid our present sufferings because we can foresee a glory to be revealed. So let me just talk about how does this get applied in our lives this week? Um, Think about this, is that we need a vision from God to face the valley of the suffering that you're in. And, and what I mean by that is I'm certainly not asking you to go home tonight and pray for some dream or for some heavenly visitation so that you can you know, write a book, make a lot of money. Uh, I'm, I'm speaking of God taking the scriptures, confirming them on your heart so that you have a vision for what is right and true and beautiful when you're facing trial. Because if you don't have a vision for that, you're going to, you're going to, choose, you're going to choose the shortcut. You're going to give up on a relationship. You're going to turn to a substance. You're going to numb yourself on Netflix. Go back, go back here to Second Peter. Just want to pick up on where I left off. Notice what he says, uh, again in verse 19. Uh, He says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, he says in verse 20, You must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What what Peter is trying to do for us is to say that when you're in a dark place, you need to know that the Bible is God's word. It's not man-made words. It's not interpretations of divine things. This is God's speech. It's 100% accurate. It's 100% authoritative. God reveals himself through the Bible. He speaks through his word and gives us a vision for the future. It's, It's pure. It's light. When you saturate yourself in the Bible, what God ends up giving you is biblical intuition. And what I mean by that is when you face a moment of suffering and you hit a crossroads, you clearly see the light and you go down it. If you don't have that in your heart when suffering strikes, you're going to go the wrong way. And that wrong way ends up having a whole bunch of detour options. But what Peter wants and what Peter needed when he was on the mountain was this. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Right? Are my ears attentive to hear God's voice in his word? Do I trust that his word is going to shape my life? Some of you have been in the church for a long time. Long time. And you still don't get up every morning and saturate yourself in God's word. 
If I could encourage any practice this week, it's a practice that you've heard a lot of times if you've been in church, is that when you get up in the morning tomorrow, or before you go to bed tomorrow night, that you would saturate yourself in the Bible. You would read it. You would read it until God's truth is second nature. It becomes intuitive. So that the next time you're in a fight with your spouse, you turn the other cheek. You bless and you do not curse. You forgive as your Father has forgiven you. This is what God's Word does. When it's in us, it comes out us. But if it ain't in us, other stuff comes out. And it ain't pretty. Same thing the next time you're sick. What comes out of you is not complaining and arguing in selfishness, but marked kindness and peace. Why? Because that's what God's word calls us to and by his spirit enables us to. There was a man by the name of Justin Martyr who was a first century, well actually second century leader, lived 100 A.D. to 165 A.D. He ended up being the leader of a number of Roman Christians that were eventually going to be sentenced to death. In the middle of a trial, he had a couple of you know, one-liners that are worth repeating. One occasion when he was faced with recanting his faith, turning from God, he said, you know, you can kill us, but you can't harm us. He had a vision for the valley of suffering and death. When they were said, they told them, if you don't recant, you will be tortured. This is what he said. That is our desire. To be tortured for our Lord Jesus Christ and so to be saved. For that will give us salvation and firm confidence at the most terrible universal tribunal of our Lord and Savior. He said those words because he knew that God. And he knew that God through the scriptures. Some of you are familiar with uh, the Ten Boom family. Uh, the Ten Booms were um, Christians in the middle of World War II. Corey and Betsy were two sisters, and because of their faith, they chose to hide Jews to save them from the concentration camps, and their decision got them thrown into concentration camps. Corey teaches us this. No pit is so deep that he, God, is not deeper still. With Jesus, even in our darkest moments, the best remains. And the very best is yet to be. I don't think our suffering is going to be quite as bad as Corey's. Yet, she had a vision for the valley of suffering and death. Because she knew no, no matter how big the pit of suffering was, her God would meet her. You know, don't miss what Jesus said back, even when he's reflecting on, he's going to go down into this valley, he's going to suffer and die. He does say, the sun will rise from the dead. 
And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that even though Jesus Christ went to the cross for our sins, and he suffered, and he died, three days later he rose again. He triumphed over the dead. And the scriptures said that all y'all, anyone who trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ, though they die, they will live. And that's the only vision we have for the valley that will sustain us. Justin Martyr had a vision for the valley. Corey Ten Boom had a vision for the valley. Peter, James, and John, they had a vision for their valley. My prayer for us as individuals and also as a church family that we would have a vision because we're going to go through the valley and it's going to be dark and it's going to be tough. Though they can kill us, they cannot harm us. We will rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, uh, my prayer goes out to those particularly in suffering today, suffering relationally, suffering physically. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, they must feel. And I pray, Lord, that they could see Christ today. They would be able to have a a vision of Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection, that they would put their hope in the only one who has ever defeated death. And that would sustain them in their present suffering. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this week that every time they pick up the Bible, you would give them a fresh vision of what is right and true and beautiful, that you would sustain them, that you would encourage them. Would you give them a truth for whatever Ever, ever, whatever fight they're in right now, that you would give them strength in the middle of addiction, that you would give them forgiveness in the middle of a relational crisis. Feed them, Lord. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Jesus Christ. They don't know this hope. They don't know that there can be hope on the backside of the suffering. Lord, I pray that they would take one step closer to Jesus. Make one step to, to trust him and put their life in Uh, his hands. I pray, God, even now as we take the Lord's Supper, uh, this is the visible word of God. We get to see truth. We're going to taste the truth that Jesus died for us, that he gave up his body and his blood. Would that nourish us this week and give us a vision for the valley as well? In Jesus' name, amen.